Hello, friends. Welcome to Time Out with Noelle Janae. This is a weekly Christian lifestyle podcast that focuses on the Bible, adulting, and all things culture with a Christian perspective. I am your host, Noelle, and thank you so much for timing out with me. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. Is what we're seeing from the Twitter threads is so bad and what was happening behind the scenes of Twitter. Imagine what is happening behind the scenes of Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. Well, maybe not Snapchat. No one uses Snapchat anymore. What is up, guys? Okay, I'm going to try to keep this intro short because I want to get right in because it's going to be a long one. And I'm going to try to get as much information into this as possible and the correct information because I don't want to edit this that much. But, um... Happy New Year's Eve, and I'm pushing the episode I wanted to do this week, the tithing episode for a couple weeks. Next week is the chosen episode, but today I want to talk about the Twitter files and why they're so important to people our age, and that um, the news people are lying to you. So, let's get into it. So, as we know, Elon Musk bought Twitter in October of this year, and... With that, he has dug deep and spilled all the tea through people like Matt Taibbi, um, who else, Barry Weiss, Lee Fang, and Michael Schellenberg, and a bunch of different people. Um, And it has been juicy. And basically, all the conspiracy theories that people have thought about Twitter, about how um, the government was, you know, controlling Twitter you know, in the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop case that um, the suspension of Trump and um, them saying that he incited violence by tweeting for the Capitol attack in January and all this stuff. And it turns out everyone that was saying those things and being labeled a conspiracy theorist or, you know, a right wing extremist or whatever, um, they were right. So, here we have in the first Twitter files is from Matt Taibbi. Um, he used to work and write for the Rolling Stone and all this stuff. And basically got excised from the left because he was covering things that he, they think he should have, have been covering. So in the first Twitter files, we see that um, evidence of um, the government... Um, and different political parties basically using Twitter as um, a suppression and reaching out to Twitter and sending, um, you know, Twitter some tweets that needed to be get gotten rid of or people that they wanted to have disappear off the platform. And we saw this both from the from both sides, from the left and from the right, but what he says in here is that let me see i'm scrolling through um is that both parties he says this in um part in uh the 10th tweet on this thread that both parties had access to these tools. For instance, in 2020 requests from both the Trump white house and the Biden campaign were received in honor honored. So they would send in tweets or accounts that they wanted to have disappeared and from both sides and Twitter honored those. Um, the system wasn't balanced. It was based on context contacts. So basically um, the more people you knew, the better chances you had. But Twitter well, is very left, uh, very democratic. So most of the Democrats um, got their way in a lot of these cases. And um, yeah. So then we get into the Hunter Biden laptop story. And it turns out in October of 2020, um, the New York Post published Biden's secret emails um, about and posted all the tea on Hunter Biden's laptops, uh, abandoned laptop, and 
Um, Twitter took extraordinary steps to suppress the story, removing links and posting warnings that it may be unsafe. They even blocked its transmission via direct message, a tool hitherto reserved for extreme cases, a.k.a. child pornography. And White House spokesperson Kaylee McEnae was locked out of her account for tweeting about the story, prompting a furious letter from the Trump campaign staffer Mike Hahn, who seized at least pretend to care for the next 20 days. This is coming right before the election, um, and people have been wondering if the story had not been suppressed, would the election have turned out differently? My answer is, we don't know. I, I don't know. Um, maybe that's in an alternate universe, basically. Basically. Um, and what had happened, basically, and this comes out in a future thread, was the FBI, the night before the New York Post was releasing this story, had called, someone had called, um, Neil Roth, and I think that's his name. I want to say that's his name. Yeel Roth, not Neil, Yeel Roth. And had basically said, hey, um... There's going to be, like, a Russian, you know, misinformation attack tomorrow. Like, just be on the lookout, whatever. I'll, you know, I'll expand when I get there. But, basically, the FBI was like, hey, Russians are doing something tomorrow. We need you to, like, stop it. And instead of it being Russians, it was Hunter Biden's laptop. So, um... Then we see that even Twitter employees knew that it was wrong to suppress the story and that it was all messed up. And then the former deputy general said that caution for this um, is warranted. He says that um, I support the conclusion that we need more facts to assess whether the materials were hacked. At this stage, however, it is reasonable for us to assume that there may have been an attack and that caution is warranted. There are some facts that indicate that the materials ha- may have been hacked, while there are others indicating that the computer was either abandoned and or the owner consented to allow the repair shop to access it for at least some purposes. We simply need more information. The information's in the New York article, New York Post article. Um, and then we see Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna re- reach out to Gade, who um, Gade is the, let me see, let me see, let me see. Um, the former head of legal policy and trust, Gade is. Um, we see Roe reach out to Gade uh, to gently suggest she hop on the phone to talk about the backlash, backlash re-speech. Kana was the only Democratic official I could find in the files who expressed concern about um, the suppression of the story. And Gade replies quickly, immediately diving into the weeds of Twitter policy, unaware Kana is more worried about the Bill of Rights because freedom of speech. And this whole Twitter files thing, really, the left has just been like, we need to, you know, they want to preach, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. But then when the facts come out, they're like, basically, in so many words, suppress speech, suppress speech, and all this stuff. So they're big mad because they're getting... um you know, exposed, basically. Um, and then Connor tries to reroute the conversation to the First Amendment, which is generally hard to find in the files. Then the day, head of public policy, Lauren Culberson, receives a ghastly letter slash report from Carl Sesbo of the research firm NetChoice, which had already polled 12 members of Congress nine Republicans and three Democrats from the House Judiciary Committee to Representative Judy Chu's office. So basically, what happens is these people 
are gathering intel about Facebook and Twitter and about the New York Post story because Twitter wasn't the only ones who was suppressing the story. It was Facebook, it was Instagram, it was all the people's. So, let's see here what else happens. And then just basically what happened is that um is that um so Sesbo reports to Twitter that some of some Hill figures are characterizing the laptop story as text access Hollywood moment. And that Sesbo's letter talks about how um, Democratic lawmakers want more moderation and um, in the freedom of speech. And that the Bill of Rights is not absolute. And that the First Amendment is not absolute. Um, and they also bring up um, Hillary Clinton's emails in this part and all this stuff. And basically, it was it was juicy, is what it was. And most all of this, a big portion of this, was all done without the knowledge of CEO Jack Dorsey. And after Dorsey jumped back in to, like, handle the situation, it took a long time for things to get better. Um, and then we have in part two, uh, Barry Weiss, she comes in and, um, does part two. She talks about how Twitter had secret blacklists of which, um, I saw Ben Shapiro was on the blacklist and he actually had a whole case, um, in the Twitter, um, in the Twitter, um, space, about whether or not he should be suppressed and whether to basically um um not suppress but basically like take away his account. So basically a new Twitter file she starts off with a new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists prevent disfavored tweets from trending and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics all in secret without informing viewers. Let's see here. Take, for example, Stanford's Dr. J. Bhattacharya. I'm sorry to you, sir who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children, Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. So in each, um, under, in, in Twitter headquarters, when they would look up specific accounts, they could put different, um, tabs on them and different, you know, coding programs were used to either, um, suppress them or, you know, count strikes against them. So, um, some were put on a search blacklist. Um, Charlie Kirk, head of, um, Turning Point was put on a do not amplify list. And also on an NSFW view. Oh, they really wanted to suppress him. Um, but in Twitter, in 2018, Twitter denied via Gade, um that we do not shadow ban, they added, and we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideologies. But all the stuff coming out is literally the complete opposite of it. What many people, this is in um, tweet seven of the thread, what many people call shadow banning, Twitter executives and employees call visibility filtering. Multiple high-level sources confirmed its meaning. Um, Think about visibility filtering as being a way for us to suppress what people see to different levels. It's a very powerful tool, one senior Twitter employee told us. So basically they were shadow banning, but they didn't want to, but because 
they didn't label it as shadow banning. It technically wasn't shadow banning to them, but to the general population, it was shadow banning. Um, let's see. The group that, this is in uh, tweet 12, the group that decided whether to limit the reach of certain users was the strategic, strategic response team and global escalation team slash global ex- escalation team. It often handled up to 200 cases, quote unquote, per day. Um... One of the accounts that rose to this level of scrutiny, meaning, um, there was another, um, group, it was a secret group called the Site Integrity Policy, Policy Escalation Report, known as SIPES, basically. Um, this was a secret group, including Head of Legal Policy and Trust, Viaja Gaday, Yul Roth, subsequent CEOs, Jack Dorsey, and some others. This is where the biggest, most politically sensitive decisions got made. Think high follower account. Controversial. Another Twitter employee told us for these, there would be no ticket or anything. Um, so basically, a secret suppression group. One of the accounts that rose to this high level of scrutiny was Libs of TikTok an account that was on the trends blacklist and was designated as do not take action on user without consulting with sipes. Um, let's see. Uh, the account, which was started in November 2020 and now has over 1.4 million followers, was subjected to six suspensions in 2022 alone. Each time, um, Rychik, who started it, was blocked from posting it for as long as a week. Um, and that Twitter repeatedly informed him, or her, sorry, that she had been suspended for violating Twitter's policy against hateful conduct. It wasn't her, her, I follow her account, and her account is not hateful whatsoever. Um, the committee, committee justified her suspensions internally by claiming her posts encouraged online harassment of hospitals and medical care providers by insinuating that gender-affirming health care is equivalent to child abuse or grooming, which it is. Um, that's 100%. And also, um, she was doxxed. Um, she was doxxed in November. A photo of her home with her address was posted in a tweet that has garnered more than 10,000 likes. When Rajik told Twitter this, um, Twitter responded with this message. We reviewed the report, con- reported content and didn't find it to be in violation of the Twitter rules. No action was ta- taken. The doxing tweet is still up. Um, and then Twitter used Slack as their internal messaging um, system. And then some other stuff happens. Um, basically, in internal Slack messages, Twitter employees spoke of using technicalities to restrict the visibility of tweets and subjects. Um, and that's basically where that leaves off. Um, wait, Yul Roth wrote the hypothesis, hypothesis underlying much of what we've implemented is that if exposure to misinformation directly causes harm, we should use remediate remediations, gosh, words, that reduce exposure and limiting the spread slash virality of content is a good way to do that. He added, we got Jack on board with implementing this for civic integrity in the near near term, but we're going to need to make more robust case to make a more robust case to get this into our repertoire of policy remediations, especially for other policy domains. And this is from a direct message to an employee on the health, wellness, privacy, and identity team, research team. So that's what he said. And that's where basically we end off with part two. Part three, we're back to Matt Taibbi. 
And this one is where he talks about um, the timeline of the removal of Donald Trump from Twitter. This goes from October 2020 to January 6, 2021. And um, basically what happened... was um on between the days of January 6th and January 8th um which we'll get into that um Twitter employees understood um with the um uh, removal of Donald Trump on Twitter that it was a landmark moment in the um happenings of free speech and let's see we're going through these the uh this is in tweet eight of this thread the bulk of the internal debate leading to trump's ban took place in those three january days however the intellectual framework was laid in the months preceding the capitol riots um before January 6th, Twitter was a unique mix of automated rule-based enforcement and more subjective moderation by senior executives. At Barry Weiss reported, the firm had a vast array of tools for manipulating visibility, most of all which were thrown at Trump and others pre-January 6th. Um, as the election approached, senior de- executives, perhaps under pressure from federal agencies, with whom they met more as time progressed, increasingly struggled with rules and began to speak of Vios as pretext to do what they likely had would have done anyway. And basically, as time went on, more, um, more federal agencies got all buddy-buddy and basically became besties with Yul Roth and Twitter executives and basically was able to um, manipulate them and pay them, bribe them to do whatever they wanted. On um, October 8th, 2020, executives opened a channel called US 2020 underscore XFN underscore enforcement. Through January 6th, this would be home for discussions about election-related removals especially ones that involved high-profile accounts, often called VITs or very important tweeters. Tweeters. There was at least some tension between safety operations, a larger department whose staffers used a more rule-based process for addressing issues like porn scams and threats, and a smaller, more powerful cadre of senior policy execs like Roth and Gaudet. The latter group were a high-speed Supreme Court of moderation, issuing content rulings on the fly, often in minutes, and based on guesses, gut calls, even Google searches, and even in cases involving the president. So basically, when they were ruling to, when they were deciding to suppress a tweet, basically it was a game of, oh, I woke up feeling this way. And, you know, they would Google it, take two seconds, not actually look and research what was happening and just be like, oh, this will be fine. Oh, this makes me angry. Um, blah, blah, blah. Some things happens. Uh, oh, and then, um, Matt Taibbi comes out, um, in, uh, tweet seven, tweet 20, sorry, and says that um, Yul Roth not only met weekly with the FBI and DHS, but also with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And that was about the Hunter Biden laptop situation. And uh, he puts Roth's report in the, in the, um, in the thread. And Roth talks about how we blocked the New York Post story, then unblocked it, but said the opposite. Comms, it's angry. Reporters think we're idiots. In short, 
FML, which I'm not going to say that. Um, see, then he's still, they're talking and talking to the FBI and other federal people. Um, FBI flags a tweet, um, from, let's see, there's a first report, and then the second report is, um, about, um, is a tweet by John Basham talking about, How um, the Democrats are in... Com- uh, this is the tweet editorial. The Democrats are in complete panic as their massive push for vote-by-mail is backfiring on them. Two things are unfolding. An unexpected number of registered Republican ballots are returning. And number two, between 2 and 25% of ballots by mail are being rejected because of errors. The FBI flag tweet then got circulated in the enforcement flag. Twitter called Polyfact to say the first story was proven to be false. Then noted the second was already deemed no view on numerous occasions. And then the group then decides to apply a learn how voting is safe and secure label because one commenter says it's totally normal to have a 2% error rate. Roth then gives the final go-ahead to the process initiated by the FBI. Examining the entire election enforcement slack, we didn't see one reference to moderation requests from the Trump campaign, the Trump White House, or Republicans generally. We looked. They may exist. We were told they do. However, they were absent here. So basically what's happened is that people have told... Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi and all the people going through all the insides of Twitter and said, oh, we weren't just doing work for the left and for the Biden administration. We were also doing work for Trump and that, you know, um, you know, the left wasn't the only people and the FBI weren't the only people who were trying to suppress tweets. It was Trump, too. And, you know, the right and Republicans and all this stuff. And basically what's come out has been. There's nothing there, and if it is, they haven't found it yet, but they've been scouring through this for more, almost a month now, and they found nothing. Um, and then we get into the second part, um, which we go now, Michael Schellenberg is on the scene, and we talk about the second part of this uh, thread about the removal of Donald Trump. And this is all, this all happened. So January 6th is the attack on the Capitol where people are stupid, um, but understandable. Uh, Not all the violence that ensued, but a peaceful protest would have been fine. That's my thoughts on the January 6th thing. And this happens the day after January 7th. Senior Twitter execs, Create justifications to ban Trump, seek a change of policy for Trump alone, distinct from other political leaders, express no concern for free speech or democracy implications of a ban. Um, then Here we go. For years, Twitter had resisted calls to ban Trump. Blocking a world leader from Twitter, it wrote in 2018, would hide important info and hamper necessary discussion around their words and actions. But after the events of January 6th, the internal external pressure on T- Twitter CEO Jack grows. Then people are tweeting at Twitter to permanently ban Trump. Um, Dorsey, Jack Dorsey, ex-CEO, was on vacation in French Polynesia the week of Twitter of January 4th through 8th, 2021. He phoned into meetings but also delegated much of the handling of the situation to senior execs, execs Yul Roth and Gade, which I love Michael Schellenberg because he tags everyone in this thread. Um... <clears throat> 
As context, it's important to understand that Twitter staff and senior execs were overwhelmingly progressive. In 2018, 2022, and 2020, wait, 2018, 2020, and 2022, 96%, 98%, 99% of Twitter staff's political donations went to Democrats. In 2017, Roth tweeted that there were actual Nazis in the White House. In April 2022, Roth told a colleague that his goal is to drive change in the world, which is why he decided not to become an academic. On January 7th, Roth, um, Jack Dorsey's emails employees saying Twitter needs to remain consistent in its policies, including the rights of users to return to Twitter after a temporary suspension. After Roth researched an employee that people who care about this aren't happy with where we are. Then Roth DMs his colleagues with news that he is excited to share. Guess what? He writes, Jack just approved repeat offender for civic integrity. The new approach would create a system where five violations or strikes would result in permanent suspension. Progress, exclaims a member of Ross' trust and safety team. Um, this exchange between Roth and his colleagues makes clear that they had been pushing Jack for greater restrictions on the speech Twitter allows around elections. Then the colleague wants to know if the decision means Trump can finally be banned. The person asks, does the incitement to violence aspect change the calculus? Roth says it doesn't. Trump continues to just have one strike. Oh, just continues to have his just one strike remaining. On Roth's colleague's query about incitement to violence heavily foreshadows what will happen the following day. On January 8th, Twitter announces a permanent ban on Trump due to risk of further incitement on of violence. Um, on January 8th, Twitter says its ban is based on specifically how Trump's tweets are being received and interpreted. But in 2019, Twitter said it did not attempt to determine all potential interpretations of the content or its intent. So basically, they're going against what they said. Um, blah, blah, blah. So basically, Trump gets banned because um, Twitter was being bribed, basically. Um, and because Twitter is a heavily left um, company. And then, and they didn't like Trump. So. So basically, they 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 changed their policies to justify their want of banning Trump is what happened. Um, because a sales exec said, "Are we dropping the public interest policy now?" Which they had changed to be, you know, the have five strikes. Or you'll be permanently banned. And Roth said six hours later. In this specific case. We're changing our public interest approach for his account. Um, the ad exec is referring to Twitter's policy of public interest exceptions. Which allows the content of elected official. Even if it violates Twitter rules. If it directly contributes to understanding or discussion of a matter of public concern. So basically, sorry, I was wrong. Basically, this public interest ex exceptions is where, let me look, um, hmm. 
season. Roth pushes for a permanent suspension of Representative um, Matt Gates, even though it, quote, doesn't quite fit anywhere, duh. It's kind of, end quote, it kind, it's a kind of test case for the rationale for banning Trump. I'm trying to talk Twitter's safety team into removal as into removal as a conspiracy that incites violence. This thread is long, okay? I probably won't get through all of these. I'm already at thirty minute, thirty five minutes. And then I believe what I remember is there is one person who's like I don't think I don't think this is this is a good idea it's a twitter engineer and they say I feel a lot of debates around exceptions stem from the fact that Trump's account is not technically different from anybody else and yet treated differently due to his personal status without corresponding twitter rules Roth's response hints at how Twitter would justify deviating from its long-standing policy. Quote, to put a different spin on it, policy is one part of the system of how Twitter works. We ran into the world changing faster than we were able to either adapt the product or the policy, end quote. The evening of January 7th, the same junior employee who expressed an unpopular opinion about ad hoc decisions that don't appear rooted in policy speaks up one last time before the end of the day. Earlier earlier that day, the employee wrote, My concern is specifically surrounding the unarticulated logic of the decision by Facebook that space fills with the idea, conspiracy theory, that all internet moguls sit around like kings casually deciding what people can and cannot see. Which is literally, this Twitter employee is correct. This is what we're seeing. It's people sitting around all day like kings casually deciding what people can and cannot see without the... Without people noticing. Um, then, uh, that's it. So that's the end, and we end that with a lovely note from, I, I want to find that. I want that Twitter employee to come out, and I want him, him or her to get an award. Then we go back to Barry Weiss. And we have one, two, three, four more threads after this. (laughs) I'm having fun, though. This is fun. So then on January 8th, this is the removal of Trump part three. On the morning of January 8th, President Donald Trump, with one remaining stripe before being at risk of permanent suspension from Twitter, tweets twice. 646, quote, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. At 7.44 a.m., to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. For years, Twitter had resisted calls, both internal and external, to ban Trump on the grounds that blocking a world leader from the platform or removing their controversial tweets would hide important information that people should be able to see and debate. Then um, she, you know, quotes something from Twitter about how they basically they basically lied in 2019. Um, after January 6th, Ed Maitaibi and uh, Michael Schellenberg have documented pressure grew both inside and outside of Twitter to ban Trump. There were dissenters inside Twitter, quote, maybe because I'm from China, said one employee on January 7th, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. And all of this, she's including screenshots of Slack messages from internal Twitter. Um, but that person from China um, was a minority, and across all the Slack, a bunch of Slack channels, many Twitter employees were upset that Trump hadn't been banned earlier. 
Um, after after January 6th, Twitter employees organized to ban, demand their employer ban Trump. There's a lot of employee advocacy happening, said one Twitter employee. We have to do the right thing and ban this account, said one staffer. It's pretty obvious he's going to try to thread the needle of incitement without violating rules, said another. In the early afternoon of January 8th, the Washington Post published an open letter signed by over 300 Twitter employees to CEO Jack Dorsey demanding Trump's ban. We must, quote, we must examine Twitter's complicity in what President-elect Biden has rightly termed insurrection, end quote. But the Twitter staff assigned to evaluate evaluate tweets quickly concluded that Trump had not violated Twitter's policy. I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement, wrote one staffer. It's pretty clear he's saying the American patriots are the ones who voted for him and not the terrorists. We can call them that, right? From Wednesday. End quote. Another staffer agreed, quote, don't see the incitement angle here, end quote. Um, then just basically them being like, you know, he's tweeting this stuff and we don't see a reason for him to be banned, but everyone's wanting us to ban him. And that none of his tweets, not, not, none of those two tweets incites violence. Let's see. And then, um... What happened, um, now we're getting into how Twitter treated Trump over other world leaders. And she pulls out a tweet in tw- from 2018 where Iran's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, I don't, I don't know that, no, I can't pronounce that name, tweeted, Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. Twitter never deleted the tweet nor banned him. Oh, I think Ayatollah is like the president of per- Iran. In October 2020, the former Malaysian Prime Minister said it was a right for Muslims to kill millions of French people. Twitter deleted this tweet for glorifying violence, but he remains on the platform. Um, And then she quotes some other people basically violating um, violating terms of service and inciting violence, but Twitter not doing anything about it. But Twitter exec, this is in tweet 25, but Twitter executives did ban Trump, even though key staffers said that Trump had not incited violence, not even in a coded way. Less than 90 minutes after Twitter employees had determined that Trump's tweets were not in violation of Twitter policy, Gade, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, he's really the, him and Yul Roth are the villains of the story is basically what's happening, asked whether it could in fact be coded incitement to further violence. A few minutes later, a Twitter employees on the scaled enforcement team suggest that Trump's tweets may have violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy if you interpreted the phrase American patriots to refer to the rioters. Then, two hours later after that, Twitter execs host a 30-minute staff meeting. Yule Dorsey, or Jack Dorsey and Gade answer staff questions as to why Trump hasn't been banned yet. But they make some employees angrier. So basically, Twitter, Jack Dorsey, is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Whether he follows his own rules that he set or, you know, have a bunch of people mad at him, basically. Um, Some other stuff happens, then one hour later... Twitter announces Trump's permanent ban due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Then many employees at Twitter were ecstatic. Um, By the next day, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible. Which, when you're giving, when you've finally given in, they're not going to stop there. They're like a, you know, 
they remind it reminds you of kudzu. You let it grow a little bit, and then all of a sudden, it's covering half the planet, and it won't stop until it kills everything. Um, let's see. And at least one person, Twitter COO Parag Agrawal, told head of security, Mood Zatko, I think a few of us should brainstorm the ripple effects of Trump's ban. Um, let's see. Outside the United States, Twitter's decision to ban Trump raised alarms, including French President Emmanuel Macron, German Prime Minister Angela Merkel, and Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. So basically, they're like, if they ban Trump, maybe they'll ban us too. Um, going down a little bit, ultimately the concerns, ultimately the concerns about Twitter's efforts to censor news about Hunter Biden's laptop, blacklist disfavored views, and ban a president aren't about the past choices of executives in a social media company. They're about the power of a handful of people at a private company to influence the public discourse and. Dis- democracy so that's how trump got banned okay and now we get into even more juicier things and this is where it gets good okay this is part six i may have to do this in two parts actually i think i'll stop here i think i'll stop here because now we're about no no, I want this all in one episode. I think I want this all in one episode. So now, um, we're gonna, you can pause the episode here. Go get yourself a little snack or something. I'm gonna try to f- wrap these last few threads up, um, as fast as I can. But now we're getting to, like, the really juicy star- stuff. So now we talk about, we're at part six, talking about... The FBI. Um, so Matt Taibbi starts talking about that Twitter's contact with the FBI was constant and per- pervasive as if it were a subsidiary. Between January 2020 and November 2022, there were over 150 emails between the FBI and former and Yul Roth. Some are mundane, like San Francisco agent Elvis Chan wishing Roth a Happy New Year, along with a reminder to attend our quarterly call next week. Other requests for information into Twitter users related to active investigation. But a surprisingly high number are requests by the FBI for Twitter to take action on election misinformation, even involving joke tweets from low follower accounts. The FBI's social media focus tax force, known as FTIF, <laughs> that's what I'm calling it, FTIF, created in the wake of the 2016 election, swelled to 80 agents and corresponded with Twitter to identify alleged foreign influence and election tampering of all kinds. Um, this included Homeland Security, which partnered with security contractors and think tanks to pressure Twitter to moderate content. It's no secret the government analyzes bulk data for all sorts of purposes, everything from tracking terror suspects to making economic forecasts. The Twitter files show something new. Agencies like the FBI and the DHS regularly sending social media content to Twitter through multiple entry points pre-flagged for moderation. What stands out is the sheer quantity of reports from the government. Some are aggregated from public hotlines. An unanswered question, do agencies like FBI and DHS do in-house flagging work themselves or farm it out? You have to prove to me that inside the blanking government, you can do any kind of massive data or AI search, says one former intelligence officer. Let's see. Then we go down. We go down. Let's see. 
Um, let's see. We go even more down. Um, let's see. Then a bunch of tweets are getting flagged by the FBI for jokes, basically, that aren't funny. It's um, <laughs> basically what happens. Um, let's see. And a bunch of them are about the election. Um, uh, talking about how um, FBI was flagging tweets um, to be suppressed that had low engagement. Um, and Matt Tybee's basically like, this is the stuff the FBI spends its time on. Um, let's see. The ubiquity of the, this is in tweet 33, ubiquity of the 2016 Russian interference story as stated pretext for building out the censorship machine can't be overstated. It's analog to how 9-11 inspired the expansion of the security states. While the DHS in its products pans permissive Social media for offering operational advantages to Russians. It also explains the domestic violent terrorist threat or extremist threat requires addressing information gaps. FBI in one case said over so many possible violative content reports, Twitter personnel congratulated each other in Slack for the monumental undertaking of reviewing them. Um, state government also flagged content. Twitter, for instance, received reports via the partner support portal, an outlet created by the Center for Internet Security, a partner organization to the DHS. Why has no one taken access? Take, why has no action taken? Um, or why was no action taken below Twitter execs receiving an alert from California officials by way of our partner support portal debate whether to act on Trump's tweet? Um, basically where he was talking about um, Joe Biden. <laughs> and about how California is in big trouble. Which it is. I can't stand California. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. Okay. Then he ends, Matt Taibbi ends with this. And you can, again, read all of the Twitter files because it's a lot and it's dense. Um, the takeaway when most people think of as the deep state is really a tangled collaboration of state agencies, private contractors, and sometimes state-funded NGOs. The lines become so blurred as to be meaningless. Then I'm about we're about to get into the FBI and the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, how many threads are in this one? Oh yeah, this one's a long one. Okay. Okay. How the FBI and intelligence community discredited factual information about Hunter Biden's laptop for Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings before both after and before the New York Post revealed the contents of his laptop on October 14, 2020. Let's see. Um basically, I can kind of like Okay, I can kind of, like, give a brief description of what happens. So, December 9th, 2019, FBI subpoenas for and takes Hunter Biden's laptop. 
August 2020, Mac Isaac still not had heard back from the FBI, even though he had discovered evidence of criminal activity, and so he emails Rudy Gilani, who was under FBI surveillance at the time. In early October, Gilani gives it to the New York Post. Shortly before 7 p.m. Eastern, on October 13th, Hunter Biden's lawyer, George Misseries, emails J.P. Isaac. Hunter and Misseries had just learned from the New York Post that a story about the laptop should be published the next day. 9.22 p.m., FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan sends 10 documents to Twitter's then-head of site integrity, Yul Roth, through Teleporter, a one-way communications channel from the FBI to Twitter, basically telling him, heads up, I'll be sending a Teleporter link for you to download 10 documents. It's not spam. Spam, please confirm receipt when you get it. The next day, October 14th, the New York Post runs its explosive story revealing the business dealings of President Joe Biden's son, Hunter. Every single fact in it was accurate. And yet, within hours, Twitter and other social media companies censored the New York Post article, preventing it from spreading more, and more importantly, undermining its credibility in the minds of Americans. Why is that? What exactly happened? Um, basically, what happened, it's important to understand that Hunter Biden earned tens of millions of dollars in contracts with foreign businesses, including ones linked to China's government, for which Hunter offered no real work. And yet, during all of 2020, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies repeatedly primed Yul Roth to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as a Russian hack-and-leak operation. This is what I was talking about earlier. This is from a sworn declaration by Roth given in December 2020. They did the same to Facebook, according to CEO Mark Zuckerberg, that, quote, the FBI basically came us to, came to us and was like, hey, you should be on high alert. We thought there was going to be a lot of Russian propaganda in 2016 election. There's about to be some kind of dump similar to that, end quote. Were the FBI warnings of a Russian hack and leak operation relating to Hunter Biden based on any new intel? No. Through our investigations, we did not see any similar competing intrusions to what happened in 2016, admitted FBI agent Elvis Chan in November. So, basically, what happened is the FBI was like, hey, to Twitter, was like, hey, there's going to be like a hack and leak thing from the Russians coming in tomorrow, um, and we're going to need you to like, stop it. But it was Hunter Biden's laptop story. Um, then. Let's see. In fact, Twitter debunked false claims by journalists of foreign influence on its platform. After FBI asks about a WAPO story on alleged foreign influence in a Washington Post, in a pro-Trump tweet, Twitter's Roth says, The article makes a lot of insinuations, but we saw no evidence that that was the case here, and in fact, a lot of strong evidence pointing in the other direction. It's not the first time that Roth has pushed back against the FBI. In January 2020, Roth resisted FBI efforts to get Twitter to share data outside of the normal search warrant process. Basically, what was happening was FBI was telling Roth, hey, change your Twitter policies or give us information so we don't have to get warrants to get people's information and Roth Thankfully, pushed back. Um, then in July 2020, the FBI's Elvis Chan's, Chan arranges for t- temporary top secret security clearances for t- Twitter executives so that the FBI can share information about threats to the upcoming election. Oh, gosh. Oh. Then, um, basically, 
Roth is saying that, you know, FBI told us that Russians were coming after us, basically. Um, but that was a lie. Then... Let's see. Then we find out that uh, some ex-FBI employees who still had top secret access were working at Twitter. Um, let's see. By mid-September 2020, Chan and Roth, FBI and Twitter, had set up encrypted messaging networks so employees from FBI and Twitter could communicate. Woo! Um, then, on October 14th, shortly after the New York Post publishes its Hunter Biden laptop story, Roth says it isn't clearly... Violative of our hacked, sorry, I literally had a brain fart there, of our hacked materials policy, nor is it clearly in violation of anything else, but adds, this feels like a lot like a subtle leak operation. So basically, I'm going to end that thread there because, you know, it just kind of goes on with more evidence. But basically, what we see is the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um... Basically going to Twitter and being like, hey, you know, something's coming out and it's going to be a hack and leak operation from the Russians and we need you to suppress it and stop it. And then the Hunter Biden laptop story comes out where he was picking up bags of money and Twitter suppresses it because it's what the FBI told them to do. And also we see the FBI trying to get innocent tax paying citizens and people, their data information, without search war- without warrants. And thankfully, Twitter is pushing against that. I think I'm going to end that for the Twitter threads. For now, there's two more. You can go read them if you want. The last one is talking about Twitter and other agencies. Um, from the Pentagon to the CIA... Um, and other things, but this is what I'm really wanting to harp on, is what we're seeing from the Twitter threads is so bad, and what was happening behind the scenes of Twitter, imagine what is happening behind the scenes of Facebook, and Instagram, and Snapchat, well, maybe not Snapchat, no one uses Snapchat anymore, like, all of these big you know, social media things we're using, and, you know, Facebook, I mean, Facebook does all, all the things, really, you know, what's happening in, uh, behind the scenes in Apple, you know, all of this stuff that's happening, and people are blind to it, because also what we're seeing with the Twitter threats is no large media News channels are talking about it. Fox News has covered it. CNN hasn't covered it. ABC News, NBC, like no one's covering this because it's exposing what's happening. And if the FBI is doing this to Twitter and Facebook, imagine what they're doing with news channels, with left-wing news channels. Sorry, that was my laptop. So basically, this has been fun. I love talking about this stuff, and I hope you guys, you know, whether you're on the left or on the right, I hope you're getting correct information. I, I, you know, I'm a conservative, Republican, whatever you want to call, right-wing, blah, but I'm all, I also do try to get both sides because, you know, there's one side, the other side, and then the truth. So, I just try to be as well-researched as I can, Um, but this has been a blast to watch go down right now, and I'm, I I love Twitter even more now, Uh, and it's nice to know that I won't be suppressed if I tweet something, um, 
you know, an unpopular opinion or something. Okay, for songs of the bye week this week, let's do Breakdown by Tom Petty and Ravens by Colin Matchak. Now, Breakdown is one I had heard before, but um, I was at a concert this past year. It was The Breaks um, featuring um, one of my friends, Grayson, and um, Zach Gordon uh, was there and singing with them. And they did, no, they didn't do this song during that concert. They were playing the Fall Festival, and they did this song. And I was like, oh, I like this. So I looked it up, and I love it even more now. So it's a good song, great song. Love Tom Petty, R.I.P. King. And um, Ravens by Colin Matchak. Colin, um, I would consider Colin a friend of mine. We don't talk a lot. Um, I guess he's more of an acquaintance at this point, but... He, I had talked about him on a way earlier Songs of the Bye Week, and I, he released an album a couple years back, uh, I want to say it's Feelings of a Teenager, it's so good, and he just released a new one called Ravens, and this is my favorite song, it's also the title song, but it's my favorite song on this album, oh my gosh, his, it's like, when he, when I, when I heard he was coming out with another album, I was like, ooh, like, I love his, like, synth, you know, he does, like, kind of a pop sound. I was not expecting a rock song, okay, a rock kind of album. So, it was very, very nice to hear. His lyrics are always fantastic. Um, I'm hoping to write with him one day and maybe do a song with him. But, yeah, so good, so good, such a good, this isn't Songs of the Bye Week. I said songs of the bye week, didn't I? It's songs of the week. I'm so sorry. One day I'll get it right. Um, I've just been saying songs of the bye week for so long. But yeah, I hope you guys have a great day, a great night, a great afternoon, a great whenever you're listening to this. Woo! Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you liked it, then leave us a five-star review and follow us wherever you're listening. Share this with your peeps and follow us on Instagram at TimeNoelPod. Have a great day, night, afternoon, or whenever you're listening to this, and goodbye!